นโมทัสสะมะกะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะมะกะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะมะกะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะบุตรังธรรมังสังขังนมัสามิดังนั้นวันนี้เราได้พูดเกี่ยวกับการฟังและเราได้ทำการบูชาและเราได้ And um, so I uh, thought it might be. Um, I was just reflecting on on the um, these qualities, and how um, on the shrine here we have, uh, along with the, the Buddha in the center, we have um, the uh, this image on the on my left, on your right, which is Avalokiteshvara, which is. Um, The uh, uh, it's an uh, ancient image. Um, Avalokiteshvara is the the Sanskrit uh, form of Guanyin. It means uh, the one who listens to the sounds of the world. And this is a, a male figure on the left. And then when uh, uh, and so in uh, in Indian and Tibetan tradition, uh, Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara is always male. But then. And then, uh, and he was male by the when he went to China. But then, after a few centuries, <laughs> a kind of uh, gender shift occurred. Gender bending is not uh, a modern phenomenon, and uh, became transformed into a female figure of uh, Guan uh, Guan Xian, which also means the one who listens to the sounds of the world. So you have this still neat arrangement of the. The you know the the female manifestation and the male manifestation of the Buddha is uh, um, that which is transcendent of of gender in the in the center. But it's it's interesting that um, the embodiment, the manifestation of, of compassion, is um, represented in the act of listening, of hearing, also. Um, What made me think of this is the um, this meditation we've been teaching on on listening, listening to the inner sound, um, in a, a Chinese sutra called the Shurangama Sutra. There's a um, uh, at one point in the in the sutra, then all of the different uh, bodhisattvas come to visit the Buddha, and the Buddha asks each one um, to describe what they would. Uh, Regard as the most effective method for uh, attaining enlightenment, for liberation, and each one describes their own particular favorite method. And um, so Manjushri talks about the cultivation of wisdom, and Samantabhadra uh, talks about um, the uh, the development of of uh, strength of will, um, uh, the uh, different uh, speciality. Each of the bodhisattvas talks about their own speciality. And the, f- the last one is uh, is uh, Guanyin, 
And so then the, the, the Buddha asks Guanyin, well, well, what would you, what is your method of, of uh, meditation and what would you describe as the best, me- best method for enlightenment? And so then Guanyin says, um, well, I, uh, I make my living place um, on the cliffs beside the ocean. And uh, uh, I make the sound of the sea the object of, uh, of uh, my meditation. I listen, listening to the, absorbing the mind in the sound of the sea. And then when the mind is fixed upon the sound of the sea, then I turn the hearing to listen internally and listen uh, to the, um, the sound of the mind. Or um, the, uh, the phrase is actually returning the, he- returning the hearing to listen to the self-nature. Um, and then the Buddha praises Guan Yin and says, yeah, this is, um, this is very good. In fact, this is indeed the best method for realizing enlightenment. And so uh, Ajahn Sumedho was actually teaching this uh, form of meditation. He never heard this about the Shurangama Sutra before, and he was teaching this, um, uh, this method in a Chinese monastery. And then afterwards, uh, a couple of people came up and said, have you ever read this sutra before? <laughs> he said, no, never never read it, and they said, oh, this is really interesting, because it, it seems like you've, you've, hit upon, you've hit upon the Shurangama Samadhi here. Our listening, the act of listening is, uh, as we've been saying, it's not just a matter of, of using um, the sound, the inner sound, as a, an object of concentration, but it, it's, it's also to do with, uh, with creating a bridge whereby we can we can listen to the, the sounds of our own mind, our own thoughts and emotions and feelings and, and learn to be completely attentive to that but without the uh, quality of, of entanglement, without getting lost in that. And um, perhaps this is why this is such a, a, um, a, a, a useful vehicle for, for liberation because this is really the... Um, the most um, testing challenge for us. It's easy to use meditation as a way of just switching off um, from our personality, our emotions, switching off from the external world. We develop a lot of concentration. We can kind of clean out the the interior space and just no intruders allowed, fences up, doors locked. (laughs) Burglar alarms on. Mm-hmm. no intruders allowed and so we can create this a kind of pleasant internal space but this is not this, uh, as the Buddha says this is this is a, uh, a pleasant abiding this is not emancipation and so that the the challenge is to uh, have the doors open and yet to not be um, uh, carried away or fooled or disturbed or caught up by all of the, the characters who show up in our in our domain. So the the quality of listening is to do with attending to all of the different dimensions of our experience, and uh, that being able to to receive it all, but yet also to know that uh, if you like the the space within which all of this is occurring. The, uh, the silence that lies behind all of the, the noise, the emptiness, the spaciousness that's there, that permeating all of the forms and shapes and colors.
you know, we've said these things many times already during this retreat, but just to to um, reiterate some of these themes. Now, last night, uh, Sister Tanasanti spoke very eloquently about um, the um, experience of, of um, or the, the the feeling of fear of of uh, rejection or alienation, the kind of um, when our sense of worth um, collapses, or when we have a very negative feeling of of, of our worth, um, they are what uh, one of the, the monks of our community refers to the "I'm no good" mantra. You know, I'm no good. 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 <laughs> probably set it to a nice tune. <laughs> but uh, I think we are all familiar with that. And I was talking with someone today um, in the interviews and um, discussing the same uh, experience. And um, there's a, a famous incident that took place here in California about 10 years ago at the Harmonia Mundi conference, where the Dalai Lama was, uh, in a, was speaking uh, um, and uh, during a, a question time, uh, somebody asked him about the experience of, of self-hatred. And then, uh, as I understand it, uh, um, the, his first response was, well, this is just uh, uh, you know, a minor mental irritation. Um, don't worry about it. It's insignificant. It'll go away. And so then, uh, after some clearing of throats, <laughs> Excuse me, Your Holiness, but... And then uh, this person went to describe, well, you know, when, when I say self-hatred, then you know, this is what I'm describing. It's like, you know, a, an ongoing, uh, nagging, incessant criticism and, and um, a, a, a feeling of, uh, of, uh, of aversion and, and um, worthlessness and so forth. And... Uh, so they describe this in kind of graphic detail about the amount of, uh, of, um, of uh, negativity towards themselves they were capable of experiencing. And, and then uh, the Dalai Lama said, well, excuse me for asking, but you know, did you do something really terrible? I mean, did you kill someone? Or did you <laughs> are you a thief? Or you know, you know, have you had some, some kind of um, uh, you know, terrible past that you have to be, you know, that you, there's so many painful things you have to remember? And then person said, no, no, it's not like that at all. I've, I've spent my life trying to keep all the rules. <laughs> and then, uh, and he was looking very puzzled by this. And then his translator, who was um, uh, was uh, trained in the Western, was at Cambridge University and, and been trained in the Western mindset, kind of, sort of <laughs> ushered him over and they went into a huddle. And there was considerable muttering and whispering going on. And he was trying to explain the whole Judeo-Christian <laughs> mindset and, and the the, uh, the devotion to self-hatred that we <laughs> that we have in the West and finally kind of his holiness kind of brought his head up and said this is most unfortunate <laughs> <laughs> with great sincerity oh dear oh dear you know it wasn't just this one person it's you know it's, this entire auditorium is filled with kind of seething mass of of self-criticism, you know, which is kind of maybe inflating it a little bit. But um, I remember also many years ago um, there was a, 
a Sri Lankan novice in our community in England, and um, and uh, he um, uh, one day he said to Ajahn Sumedho, who is American, um, and who was who was the, the teacher, the abbot of the monastery. This was in the early days of our community in England. He said, "You know, I can't understand why you keep going on and on and on about self-criticism and self-hatred and self-denigration. I like myself." <laughs> I'm quite a nice person. And it was just, like, every head in the room turned, like, what? (laughs) You know, and he wasn't being kind of arrogant or or inflated. It was just, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, I don't hate myself, you know. (laughs) And uh, it was really interesting because of all the people there. Um, and what was, an, what was an obvious truth to him, it was like a thought that had never crossed any of the minds <laughs> of anybody else in the room. You might have tried to convince yourself that you were, you were a nice person. But um, so easily the, the waves of, of um, uh, feeling incomplete or, 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 or um, fraudulent or um, a failure, um, worthless, and not trying hard enough, not doing well enough, and the fear of rejection by others. You know, these are all very, very familiar themes to us who've grown up in this in this culture. And I, I also, I should say, I don't mean to kind of idealize the the the, the Eastern mindset as being you know, all kind of perfectly wonderful, and us um, Euros have got it all wrong. But uh, this is, I would, I think everyone would agree, is a pretty familiar uh, characteristic. So that that uh, experience uh, and that that f- um, that quality of uh, of mind is something that we can. It can become an assumed reality. It's like a, our sort of baseline um, for experience. It's like a, a sort of default option, if in doubt. <laughs> Hate yourself. <laughs> it's, it's always, it's like every time you turn around, there it is. So you assume that's the, the basic reality. Um, and that um, it's, uh, I think, also a lot to do with the um, individualism. And it's particularly strong in America. And uh, I think the uh, in this culture, the individual excellence is praised as the, the ultimate good. You know, me, the winner, is uh, again like Sister Tanasanti was was saying yesterday. You know, you score a lot of points for coming first, and that this culture really praises winning. And I also I like to point out often that uh, in American sports, it's really hard to get a tie or a draw. You know, everything is rigged so you get a winner. <laughs> they they don't like to have you know uh, 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 kind of uh, teams coming out even. And cricket must be inconceivable to the American mind, where you can have, you can play for five days and have end up with no result, <laughs> and everyone goes home happy. You know. <laughs> the, the English are very strange, so. but it, I think it, it's it's important to to see the effect of that, the the inflation that you know the winner gets. So even the point where you know someone gets a silver medal in the Olympics and they're, they're kind of pouring tears because they failed, you know. So that 
the the karmic effect of uh, that inflation of the 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 the, in, the excellence of the individual, me first, me the winner, and uh, that is is a powerful influence on our minds, and so that what it does is is it it puts us out there with a very strong uh, instinctual fear of failure, like failure is the most terrible thing, and um, that we want to to live in such a way that we can we'll avoid it at all costs. Another another little um, fact uh, fact that I like to um, to to use in the, when exploring this subject is um, uh, a survey a number of years ago, a census that uh, was done through Harvard University, the um, psychology department, and they they polled several thousand people in the USA and and. Uh, and the poll was about what people were most afraid of. Um, I, I forget the, the list of the, the exact list of the top ten, but uh, dying, dying was number four. Uh, I'm not sure what number three was. Nuclear war was number t- was number two. And number one was public speaking. <laughs> now, so we are more afraid of being embarrassed on stage than we are of the demise of the entire planet. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? The, the, kind of the, the, the uh, a nuclear war, obviously you know, implying either the kind of wiping out or extreme radical damage to the living systems of the planet, that, that's more of a bearable concept than, than me embarrassing myself in public. So, it's in a way it says we're we're more identified with our personality and individual success than we are with our sort of biological reality as a as a living being. That the physical death is number four. This ordinary kind of regular, you know, off the shelf death <laughs> is number four. But the the possibility of, of dying on stage is number one. That so that we are and I think it's really significant. So we're actually more identified with our egos than we are with our bodies, which is really worth, mm, right, <laughs> getting in there. But physical death is a kind of abstract thing nowadays. You know, it's, most of us have lived many, many years without even seeing another dead person. You know, I was over twenty before I saw a dead body, a dead human. So physical death is a kind of, and even when you do go and you know someone in your family dies. Then when you go to the funeral parlor, they look better than you do. You know? <laughs> All the kind of fancy clothes and the makeup, and I think, hey, you know, he never looked that, he hasn't looked that good for years. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, the whole physical death has become a kind of an abstracted thing, but, but ego death is something that's very real to us. And so, a lot of our strategies in life are to do with fending off and trying to escape from the possibility of ego death, like me failing. And uh, and uh, this is, um, I mean, it's, it's a big a big subject, but I think that um, there's there's different dimensions to this, and there's the the uh, an obvious dimension of um, um, seeing how much we live and what we do, um, the, the kind of emotional reactivity that goes on um, within us um, around that, uh, how much we're driven by trying to avoid that, how much we carry around uh, 
um, things that we failed at. At least, I mean, I'm, I'm making these kind of generalizations, but I, I suspect most people can relate to this. But it's interesting how the things that we got wrong, that kind of, in the course of a day, if you look back, the course of a day, if, you, if, you medis- if you're meditating in the evening, that one uh, comment that you dropped that, um, that didn't come out quite right, that um, somebody got offended by, or that made you sound like a, a sexist pig, or, you, or that you had some kind of weird political opinion, or, or that um, someone kind of took offense at, of all of the good things that you've done, all of the acts of kindness and, and countless ways that you were kind of honest and kind and, and gentle and sensitive during the day, they vanish. Because that one, that one missed shot where you, know, you said that thing and, and then you know, he snarled at you or, or, or looked kind of ugly, then it, it sits like a, a barb, in, like a spear in your, in your heart. This is what I find. How that, oh dear, I blew it, I got it wrong. How terrible, how can I make up for that? So, on one level, just that learning how we, are, um, we deal with that sense of, of um, like a negative self-image and self-criticism, the feeling of failure, is just un- learning to understand that and, and hopefully with the, the kind of, some of the, the meditation methods we've been talking about, it's helpful to explore that kind of area. Going to those very experiences and feelings is is uh, is very useful. But another area, which is a, a, a kind of functioning at a much more subtle level, um, is also important. And this is the the um, it's also to do with with ego death. But it's at a much more refined level. It's not to do with kind of me getting me blowing it socially, um, or me getting you know me losing. Uh, um, a job, or me, um, someone you know, walking out on me, or getting criticized by my friends, whatever. But it's to do with um, the the uh, the loss of, uh, of what we do when the feeling of me disappears, because, um, uh, like like Gurdjieff once said, um, you can take away anything from people except for their suffering they'll hang on to that until death. So it's far better to be an an anguished me, a me with heavy problems, a me with insatiable um, passions, or or me who's a a useless wretch, than than not being me at all, than not, not having a defined sense of being. And where this becomes apparent, if you, if you notice, like during meditation, sometimes when you, you let go of a train of thought, or you let go of a feeling of self, and um, there's a moment where the, the, the heart relaxes and opens, everything's bright and clear, and you go, ah, oh, how beautiful. And then you're left with this empty space. And then this kind of restlessness moves in, like, huh, right. So, hmm. <laughs> so, uh, what, uh, what, what to do? Huh? What's, what's going on? And quick, you know, find something to, to, to do or to worry about or to, to get a hold of or something to get rid of or, you know, a, a good defilement to, to attack. Or 
something or or a um, painful memory to make friends with anything. <laughs> and so, because this space, that sp- that that kind of loss of uh, of that definition seems like death. So, and this is uh, this whole this is a um, a major issue. I mean, I, I want I gave a talk on this at, at Esla Institute once, <laughs> which is kind of interesting, where one's um, uh, one's pain becomes a prized possession. It's, it's a, a kind of living in a sort of gestalt therapy uh, community, that it's like the major currency is is my stuff. I mean, not my me individually, but you know, one's stuff, and. Um, it was uh, it was really interesting being asked. They asked me to talk about this. Like, what do you do when when uh, you let go of your stuff? What are you left with? <laughs> you know, you're out of cash. <laughs> All of your resources are gone. What about my story? You know, <laughs> you mean let go of my story? Oh no. Yeah. So um, it's can be very disturbing, and one doesn't you know know what to do. Uh, the um, in a way, this is um, this is a, 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 a an obstacle that if we can't get over this, then we'll never really be free. Because um, it's in learning to um, allow our orientation. Of, of what we what we what we regard ourselves to be, what we what we consider our um, uh, our fundamental reality in life. You know, if our fundamental reality is based around our, our personality, our body, our history, the the, um, the 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 social aspect of our being, if that's what we think we are then um, when that's threatened or when that dissolves, when that breaks up, then what we're left with is, oh, you know, uh, what, I, what I was has gone. I'm lost. You know, I'm in a bereft state. I'm incomplete. That, that reality is gone. So that um, it's like shifting the, the perspective from uh, identification with the body and the personality, the five khandhas, if you like, to non-identification. To not defining the the uh, ourselves. Now that that restless when we we let go. I mean, on on, on one level, you think, well, you let go of uh, of the ego and you let go of the sense of self, and it should be it should be blissful. Well, it is blissful to the to the um, to our own nature, if you like, to the to the mind of what they call the the, the clear light, the mind of clear light, the pabasara jitta, to our own. Um, the true nature of the mind, uh, then that uh, experience is one of bliss. But to the conditioned mind, the the um, conceptual mind, when it experiences that letting go, then it relates to it as loss. It relates to it as a state of bereavement because you know I you know I was this thing now it's gone. So. What the voice that we're hearing, or the, the the thing that's driving that restlessness to try and fill up the space, or to get hold of something and do something, that is the the, the kind of karmic effect of 
identification. It's, the, it's like the, the ego's voice that is, is speaking. It's, it's that urge. That urgency is coming from our egoic habits. And so that, that desperation to get hold of something, to, to do something, to be something, is at that very moment what we're experiencing is raw self. That is the feeling of, of I-ness, kind of desperate to be, desperate to come into being. And it relates to, uh, and, and that fear of death, that fear of non-being, is, is only coming from the degree to which we have attached and identified with, with things through our life. Now this is a, a subtle area of practice, but it's, it's an extremely important one. Um, and it's, it's particularly important because in, in the West, we, we are, it's a very life-affirming culture. You know, we, we, uh, we want to live, we want to love, we want to be, we want to do, we want to manifest. And, and, and all goodness is represented in terms of, of manifestation, of fulfillment, of um, consummation. You know, it's, it's very much these kind of words are used in our, in our sort of philosophical um, map-making of the goal of a human life. And um, we, uh, we don't have much of a, um, of a language to, to speak about the, the wonders of, of non-being, <laughs> the glories of non-clinging. <laughs> you know, <it's laughs> You know, it's uh, non-clinging is like you know a saran wrap that doesn't work. You know, <laughs> you know, big deal. So, it, we don't have much that really relates to that that kind of quality. There's a brilliant little discourse of the Buddha in the in the Itivuttaka, where the Buddha says, uh, when when confronted with the teaching of the Dhamma, some devas and humans overreach and some hold back. And, said, and so, how, and how do they hold back? So when, when some devas and humans hear the Dharma teaching that um, that espouses the cessation, that, that espouses the cessation of being, then um, they are their hearts do not acquire confidence and, and gladness, and so they hold back because of their love of being. When confronted with the idea of cessation of being, then. They uh, they they're not inspired or, or or emboldened or made confident, so they hold back. And then he says, so how does some overreach? Well, other beings who are uh, who feel negative or disgusted with with being, who are averse to being, then they think, with uh, the breaking up of the body after death, then um, everything ceases, and this is reality. This is good. This is wonderful. This is bliss. And thus they overreach. And then the Buddha says, only those with vision see. And how does such one see? They see that whatever has arisen as having arisen and, having, uh, and seeing it as arisen, then they let go of it. They relinquish it. They, they um, do not identify with that. Thus it is that uh, those with vision see. So what is being aimed at with the practice is... Um, it's as a um, as Thich Nhat Hanh has said that to be or not to be is not the question. 
that what the Buddha is teaching is pointing to, um, and as again, right at the very beginning of this retreat, I said, you know, this is we get we get into some subtle areas where, um, you know, you, you it gets fairly abstruse, and that's why the Buddha in the beginning didn't want to bother teaching because this is a an area that's it's extremely difficult to talk about where you're talking about the goal of the spiritual life, all of this kind of hours and hours we've been sort of grinding away on the cushions, <laughs> massaging our knees and, and, uh, and negotiating with our, our errant minds, that all of this is aimed at what? Some subtle state of being, which is uh, some subtle state of, uh, of mind or consciousness, which is beyond being and non-being. And it doesn't give you much to grasp hold of. <laughs> Neither being nor non-being. But uh, you know, this is what the, the Buddha points to. It's like um, the, uh, he, there's another phrase that he uses, which I find very beautiful and helpful, which is um, such a one abandons craving for being without clinging to non-being. So it's like you're not trying to make yourself not be. But like whatever arises, or whatever the, the the instinct or the impulse to identify with, as that comes in, as that comes into manifestation, as a letting go of that, but letting go of that without grabbing onto something else, and that's the trick. That's the the, the trick of like because we you know that the feeling of like you know you know, you see yourself clinging on the left. You say, okay, let go, let go, let go. Ah. Look at that, I let go. <laughs> Great, I really let go. Why am I still tense? <laughs> I've still got, oh, okay, right. Okay, let go, let go, let go. Oh. oh, great, I let go. See, I did it, I got it right, I got it right. Why don't I feel good? <laughs> and it's just one thing after another. You, you let go of your parents, and then you grabbed hold of your job, and then you let go of your job, and you grabbed hold of your diet, and then you let go of your diet, and you... <laughs> You grabbed hold of your meditation practice. You let go of your meditation practice, and you grab. <laughs> on it goes. So it's it's hard to speak of, but this is the 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 point that we're 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 aiming at, is the training of the heart to to let things go and just allow space to be there, to allow our our nature to be undefined. Um, which means that if you like feeling that the reverberations of the ego, the kind of sometimes it can be like just wailing, please, <laughs> just just let me be something, <laughs> um, and just listening to that, feeling that, and and not being shaken by it. Now you know this is a this is a life affirming culture, and our language is to is pointed towards that. So. It can seem many of the teachings can seem to have a kind of negative cast to them, like in the in the metta sutta that we do in the evenings, uh, of the pure-hearted one, uh, um, by not holding to fixed by ho- not holding to fixed views, being freed from all sense desires, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is not born again into this world. And then you know the 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 instant reaction is, well, I don't mind being reborn again. I quite like this world, you know. I'd like to come back if I could just stop suffering. <laughs> you know, just hang around with the trees and the rocks and the sky and the earth and just kind of 
cruise around, enjoy it all, and just not suffer. That'd be great. What's so wrong with that? So, because we, we take a phrase like not being reborn, and we think it's like, therefore, an aversion to the world of people and things and form. And, and yet the Buddha said, no, it's not that. That's not, it's not an aversion. But so in a way we have to, particularly dealing with the Theravada teachings, and again with the, with the question that came up about Mahayana, it was through the misunderstanding of these very teachings that the kind of positivist, life-affirming language of the Mahayana arose. Because of taking these kind of teachings about like not being reborn or, or liberation, transcendence, um, letting go, cessation, um, the being taking the kind of negative connotations of those and, and reacting against them. But when we really use these and we, we contemplate them and understand them, you see that it's actually it's not it's not any kind of negativity at all. But it's talking about a, a, a just this extraordinarily subtle quality of mind that is beyond the realm of of form and concept. The um, There's uh, a number of places in, in the teachings that try where the Buddha, many many places where the Buddha is pointing at this quality. I mean, nibbana, if you like, is a, is like a, an adjectival noun. It's a descriptive noun that is describing the experience of that reality as perfect peace, a complete happiness, fulfillment. And so, you know, the, that's uh, one way of talking about it. When, when uh, expounding on that, the, the Buddha would say things like, um, there is that sphere of being where there is no earth, no fire, no water, no air. There is neither this world nor another world where the sun and moon do not shine and there are no stars and there is no darkness. Um, and in this realm, there is uh, e- not even the, the refined states of consciousness, of uh, um, infinite consciousness, um, infinity of space, of nothingness, or what's called neither perception or non-perception. In this, in this sphere of being, there is neither a coming, nor a going, nor a standing still. And it has no generation, no development and no support. This is the end of dukkha. Now what that's doing is that's kind of stripping away all of our concepts of, of you know, what we are or where we're going. It's like, and that the whole point of that kind of language is, is like deconstructing the habitual way that we frame what we are and, where, and the way that we, we conceive our life. The, um, the last uh, teaching that Ajahn Chah gave to Ajahn Sumedho in, uh, in 1981, Ajahn Chah had a stroke and was paralyzed and couldn't speak anymore. But just before that, that uh, stroke hit him, he, um, he asked one of the Western monks to take a take dictation 
and to write for him to write a letter to Ajahn Smedo in England. We just started up the branch monastery there. And uh, Ajahn Chah was not a big letter writer. You know. mm-hmm. I mean, he, he's uh, hardly known to have written anything at all, but uh, let alone writing letters to anybody. So this is a fairly unprecedented move. But um, what this letter said was, uh, it was basically the final instructions to Ajahn Smedo, which was, Whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building paramita, spiritual virtues. The Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This tomato is your place of non-abiding. The Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards nor in standing still. This is the place of non-abiding. Now we take a teaching like that, and it's not just trying to be deliberately obtuse, or think, well, what about sideways? (laughs) Up? Down? Kind of north-northwest? You know, it's, and this is, Ajahn Chah used to, like many teachers, he would kind of have a sort of pet theme that he'd work on for a few months, and, and he used to like to ask people these, these kind of testing questions, and so sometimes when people came to see him, he'd say, um, if you can't go forwards and you can't go back and you can't stand still, where do you go? And he'd give you this look, <laughs> and then you, you come up with these kind of faint-hearted replies, and, and he'd sort of shake his head. And um, the reason being that as long as we conceive ourselves as this person in this body, passing through time and space, then there's no answer to the question. It's an impossible question. But the, 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 the point of the question is to awaken us to that in us which is not related to, to three-dimensional space, that is not related to, to linear time, that is not related to, to um, the individual identity. As long as there's an individual person located in space, going through time, then it's that you're trapped by the question. So that the only thing, what you can do, if you can't go forwards, you can't go back, you can't stand still, what you can do is you can realize that you know, the body is not self, feelings are not self, <laughs> perceptions are not self, that I that there's that quality of nature, that, uh, of our nature, of every single one of us, which is timeless, akaliko, which is um, unconfined by three-dimensional space, which is not related to that, which is beyond that. And uh, it's, even interest, it's interesting that even like in, in the world of physics now, that physicists begin to have actually kind of touching this very same quality of, of just the physical world, that there's, um, as you get into subatomic physics, you begin to, to get into some of these same concepts of, of like what they call non-locality. You, know, you can't define a thing at a particular place. So, and the whole, also the whole structure of time in that subatomic world is also very, very fabricated, relative conditioned. 
so what these kind of teachings are doing is that they're, they're pushing us to, to deconstruct our habitual ways of, of thinking. And then, you know, it's easy to say, well, look, come on, let's get real. You know, I am a person. <laughs> I've got a name, I've got a social security number, and I'm sitting on this cushion, my knees are aching, right? Well, it's true, there are numbers exist. <laughs> Aches arise and pass away. And obviously the, the conventional and, and conditioned reality does pertain. But what these are doing, it's like, and this is why the Buddha didn't even want to bother teaching, it's like, it's like that finest of fine cracks in the system that say, look, if you look between, you know, if you just look between the cracks in your social security number, <laughs> the space between your thoughts, that moment between the, the ache in your back and the twinge in your knee, <laughs> there's a crack. Look, what's through there? What do we find? Now this is, it, it, and it's, it is frustrating to the thinking mind, but I think it's, it's really important to get the kind of conceptual framework clear so that we know where to look for freedom. Because if we're looking for freedom uh, and liberation, emancipation in the conditioned world, we won't find it. Like, it's like uh, they, they have this expression in Thai, looking for a turtle with a moustache, you know, or like a rabbit with horns. It's, it's just, if you're looking for satisfaction in that which is which cannot satisfy, you're going you're gonna to suffer. If you're looking for security in that which is inherently insecure and time-bound, we have to suffer, we're going to be disappointed. So what this is doing is helping us to see where that can be found. There's a, another um, well-known exchange that took place between the, the Buddha and a, a wanderer called Vachagota. Um, and uh, Vachagota is this kind of very uh, sweet guy who um, comes and is ask, asks the Buddha questions on a number of occasions and eventually ends up totally enlightened but has a frustrating time before then. <laughs> He's one of those ones who goes up to the Buddha and asks him a bunch of questions and then the Buddha just sits there without answering. And uh, not a word. And, uh, and uh, Vachagota kind of ends, uh, ends up being kind of frustrated and disappointed. Anyway, on this particular occasion, he asked the Buddha, what happens to an enlightened being after they die? Where do they go? Which you might think is a pretty reasonable question. Yeah. Um, and then the, the Buddha asks him, well, yeah, if, uh, if we had a... Uh, well, he would, well, the first thing he said... Um, when Avachagata said, does an enlightened being exist after death? And then the Buddha says, exists does not apply. So well, do, they, do they not exist? Do they not reappear? And the Buddha says, does not reappear, does not apply. And then, of course, being Indian logicians, they say, well, do they both reappear and not reappear? <laughs> and the Buddha says, both reappear and not reappear does not apply. Okay, does... Do they neither reappear nor not reappear? <laughs> this is called the quadrilemma. And the Buddha says, does neither reappear nor not reappear? This does not apply either. And then uh, Vajragata says, I am befuddled, I am confused. <laughs> How can it possibly be that uh, 
these four different possibilities, you know, none of them apply. And the Buddha says, well, it's like this, Vajragota. If we had a little fire burning here, made out of twigs and grass, and, uh, and then the fire is burning for a while, and then it goes out. And then I ask you the question, where did the fire go, Vajragota? North, south, east, or west? What would you say? I'd say the question didn't apply, also. The fire didn't go any place, it just went out. And the Buddha said, exactly so, Vajra. Because um, the way you phrase the question presumes a reality that does not exist. You ask, where does an enlightened being go? Well, where doesn't apply. Being, individual being, doesn't apply. Go doesn't apply. <laughs> you know, these are all concepts that are based around individuality, around time, around space, and that the, um, uh, the most that the, the, you know, Buddha would say is like, such a one has passed out of the, the sphere of knowledge of gods and humans. So another occasion, a, a similar question is put to the Buddha by a, 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 another character called Upasiva. And Upasiva, similarly frustrated as Vachagota says, you know, well, you're one who's understood this, and, and you know. So can you tell me, once and for all, um, one who has reached the end, you know, at the, end, uh, at the breaking up of the body after death, uh, do they, uh, are they made immortal? Do they not exist? Or are they made immortal, eternally free? And uh, the Buddha then says, um, Such a one has passed beyond all designations. That by which they could be spoken of is no more. You cannot say they do not exist, but when all modes of being, all phenomena are removed, then all means of description have gone too. So, and even in the Buddha's time, and, and he's infinitely more eloquent than I, then he would give these kind of teachings and people would say, I don't get it. Either they're there or they're not there. <laughs> but, uh, and he was thoroughly misunderstood on this point, but he, he was absolutely firm. You know, he would never, people would say, well, come on, you can tell me. You know, I won't, I won't sneak, you know. Yeah, I won't pass it on promise, you know keep it in the family, you know. I know for the kind of the, the uh, just uh, for, for the outsiders, you know, but just you can, you know, you can tell me. But he would never, he would never say anything because it's, it's in a way being faithful to the reality rather than creating some kind of complicated metaphysical description. He, his emphasis was like, well, you, if you do this, you'll realize this truth for yourself. And then you you understand why words can't apply. But we're, what we're trying to do is use language, concept, to point to that which is inherently beyond language. Now it might be that you're faced with the idea of um, um, uh, you know, the, the concept of um, going beyond designation. And I think, well, what does that mean? 
you know, such a one, you know, passes beyond, has passed beyond all designation. You know, what, what is that? You know, you, come on, come on, give me something to get my fingers into. Get, you know, give me some juice here. I'm putting all these hours on the cushion and all this kind of soreness and, and uh, impatience. And, you know, all I get is passing beyond designation. <laughs> it's like, you know, a book that can't be, uh, you know, the, the, the sticker's fallen off the book in the library, you know. <laughs> Unclassifiable. And so that doesn't seem to be very kind of glorious or particularly attractive or interesting. But it, it's, I find it really impressive that the Buddha didn't try to kind of glorify that or get too inflated about it, but he was really kind of patient and quiet and said, Look, just do the necessary and you'll find out why this is the very best that can be done with a human life. You know, that he, um, he knew that all the kind of poetry and, and grandiosity would come later, but in the original teachings, it's very, very simple and plain. Now that is a, it's a, it's a challenge to us, in letting go of that which is familiar. Um, letting go of the, the habitual ways that we define ourselves and describe ourselves. And, and uh, say, you mean if I go to Nibbana that I'm going to, you know, would I ever see my loved ones again? <laughs> what about my garden? You know? <laughs> And, uh, and these are reasonable questions. But um, the, all, the Buddha, all, the, all that the Buddha would respond with is, is a kind of, take it from me, you won't regret it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. So it's a risk, you know. It's, a, it's like a leaving behind what is familiar um, to go into the unknown. But that's what is, is that the whole spiritual path is, is dependent upon that stepping out into the unknown, leaving behind the familiar. If, if we always want to have the familiar with us, it's like a snake carrying all its old skins around. You know, you get, it's getting pretty kind of cramped and clunky. You know, it's like leaving your old skin behind and, and emerging into a world. And when you leave a skin behind, then there's, a, there's some moments where you're pretty tender. You know, when, a, when a, um, a butterfly comes out of the chrysalis, it's pretty soft and has to kind of go out on a leaf and dry out. It's, it's very um, fragile. And, that, and the spiritual practice is very much like that. You know, when we, 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 we have the courage to step out from our familiar identities and leave that spaciousness of the mind undefined and unfilled, then it's like the, the little butterfly, you know, out on a leaf drying, you know, it's all kinds of birds going to wait for that moment to come along and get this nice juicy morsel before the butterfly can fly away and look after itself. You know, so we can feel sort of a bit tender and a bit vulnerable and a bit exposed. But this is what... This, we need courage for this practice. It needs bravery to, to be... Um, to, to uh, not react to those kind of self-protective urges of wanting to kind of scurry back into the familiar and kind of climb back into your pupa, you know, your, your, your case again. It's like, well, it was safe in there. <laughs> but, you know, if you're sort of climbing, like the chick kind of climbing back into the egg, well, what? It's a bit big out here, isn't it? <laughs> I like it back in the egg, you know, I think I'll climb back in again. And you try and clamber in and stick the bits of shell back on. But it doesn't work, you know, if we, if we stay in the shell, we suffocate. So. 
it's the, the, the process of real spiritual development, real liberation, necessarily involves that kind of rawness and vulnerability and readiness to, to, to brave that. But if we do that, then the, the result is, is this tremendous freedom, kind of invulnerability and, and, and ease in life. And that during the, in the next few days, and you know, we'll um, go into some particular kinds of meditation practice. You might think this is all sounding like the kind of thing you want to avoid at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and, it, and, it, and the idea of letting go of self is, is, uh, a sen- is, a, is if you like, the central principle um, in terms of of uh, the act of liberation, it's like the Buddha described, um, being free v- from the conceit, I am, that is Nibbana, here and now. But in the moment where we, let, we really let go of that, the uh, sense of I, which is like seeing that as a, just as a, a, a mental event, the feeling of I, the seeing that the ego is transparent, right there we, we experience Nibbana, there's that experience of of wholeness and and security and peace, incredible peace. And there are there are many kinds of, of practice that we can do to consciously be cultivating that, to to be developing that, that um, directing the attention right at the feeling of self, and learning to understand that how it works and what its dynamics are, so that as we understand it then uh, we learn not to be taken in by it, to be dominated by it and fooled by that. So when we, when we, we hear that, the voice going, well, if you ask me, if I, I think it'd be much more sensible if, or, or I think, or let's be reasonable about this, or I can't stand this, or I want a bit more of that. And you realize every sentence that has I in it should not be trusted. <laughs> not that you should reject it, but just, if it's got I, uh, I think, I want, I reckon, I am, I don't, then take two steps back and look closely. <laughs> so that then that stops being the, the domin- dominating tyrant, kind of domineering tyrant in our life. But we learn to be guided more by the voice of wisdom and unselfishness than by the, the, uh, the me drive. So I will uh, offer these thoughts for t- uh, us all to consider this evening. Please uh, take what is useful and uh, the rest which is useless or um, pending understanding, <laughs> <laughs> just uh, leave to one side. Anyone? Namayang Varagata Sadhukarang Dhamma Se Sadhukarang Dhamma Se